Tonight is our final night, and we're going to be looking at the final two chapters of Revelation. Depending on how things go, if we have time, we'll hopefully do a little bit of a review. Just kind of go back and uh, review a couple key points. Any questions you have, I'll either try to answer them or send you to someone who can. And then you will go out of here officially. We got this stamp. goes in your forehead. It says you're a... You're an expert in the book of Revelation. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so last week was, uh, was we spent time in uh, Revelation 19 and 20. Uh, and we talked a lot about the, the whole millennium. Uh, the tribulation uh, is followed by the millennium. Unpacked what life would be like in the millennium. Referenced a s- series of... Uh, Old Testament passages, I think we looked at Ezekiel 34, uh, Isaiah 2, looked at a passage in Zechariah, one in Hosea, Daniel 7, Um, and those are key passages to look at because they they really do challenge amillennialism and postmillennialism, especially amillennialism, which doesn't see a literal millennium, because uh, Isaiah chapter 2 in particular, really introduces the reader to a series of promises that God has made to Israel that I think it would be really hard for anyone to argue have already been fulfilled. So when you, when you read Isaiah chapter 2 and it talks about one day that, you know, the, 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 uh, the Messiah will be in Jerusalem, he'll be ruling the nations, all the nations will come. You could say, well, that sounds a little bit like the New Testament, the early world, because people from all nations came for trade. But then when it talks about there's going to be peace, and then all the nations are going to turn their um, swords into plowshares, in other words, there's going to be no more war. No, that, that has never happened in the history of humanity. And so, I can't understand how you could take those passages as anything other than something yet future. And best as I can tell, they fit quite comfortably in the millennial uh, kingdom. So we talked about that last week. And uh, tonight we're going to get into Revelation 20 and 20, or 21 and 22. And what you'll see there as well is that John, for instance, depends on how you want to look at it. From a literary perspective, John borrows the language of the prophets he especially borrows again from Isaiah and Ezekiel. So if you read Isaiah 60 and 65, or if you read Ezekiel 40 to 48, you'll see a lot of a language and figures that John is using in uh, Revelation 21 and 22 grounded and founded there. I'll just give you an example of one as we get started. In uh, Isaiah 60, verses 20 and following, it says, Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Well, you're going to see that kind of imagery in Revelation tonight where it talks about there being no more sun, no more moon, Christ being the light, uh, all the nations coming, there's an emphasis on righteousness, 
and no more crying, no more mourning, no more tears, no more suffering. This is drawn from Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 65 and the other passages that I mentioned. Um, So from a literary perspective, that's where he's borrowing his language. Of course, on the other hand, he is having a vision, and uh, it's a true vision, but he's trying to describe it in human words. So I believe that John, based upon his familiarity with the Old Testament, doesn't make up all his own language, but he draws familiar language out of the prophets to try to put into human words, try to describe for us what it is that he's seeing. This is a key to to prophetic or apocalyptic literature. Most of the time, what you're reading in Revelation is either drawn from some image or some prophecy or some aspect in the prophet, the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible. Okay? So what we're looking at then in Revelation 21 is this is, um, this is where we're introduced to this, this vision of a, a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down and uh, becoming the place where God's people will dwell for all of, all of eternity. So we'll go to, uh, to, uh, go to Revelation in our Bibles. And if you recall, at the tail end, let me find my reference here, to chapter 20, there is a, um, a reference to uh, the great white throne judgment. And I suggested to you that the great white throne judgment is probably the judgment that is reserved for the unbeliever, whereas the Bema seat judgment would be reserved for the believer. This is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And the emphasis there seems to be on the giving of rewards, whereas the emphasis, unfortunately, the great white, judgment, ju- great white throne judgment is consignment to uh, eternity separated from God. So death, Hades, evil angels, unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles alike, all tossed into what's known as the, the, uh, the lake of fire, okay? Now, um, this imagery of a lake of fire is going to be picked up again, I think, in chapter 22, the second part of chapter 21 or 22. And I wanted to just give you a little bit of a, a, a background to the idea of hell or lake of fire. So if you go to um, the Jerusalem that exists today, not the new Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that exists today, you've heard this many, many times. It's, it's on a hill. The hill's been chopped down and kind of obviously rearranged a little bit because of the building that's taken place there. They've quarried stone off the top of the hill and built the temple, for instance, or the, the temple walls. So the, the hill itself has been reduced, but then buildings have been added to the top. And if you're standing um, on the top, top, top of Jerusalem in the old city, so the, the old city is, is very small compared to modern-day Jerusalem. It's just a, it's like, like a little section of it. But if you go there, you can look out uh, to the east, I believe it is, and there's a valley that starts at the top and kind of runs down into um, uh, kind of a, a neighborhood of sorts. And this is known as the Kidron Valley. Sometimes it's also known in the scriptures as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So the Kidron Valley has uh, the, the majority of tombs that are known and discovered in Jerusalem are in the Kidron Valley. You could um, look at a tomb that purportedly was Absalom's, probably wasn't, but purportedly Absalom's. There's a series of empty tombs on there. You can kind of walk into them and see where 
bodies have been stored over the centuries. And um, then this, this valley actually just kind of meanders its way uh, through, through the modern, more modern parts of Jerusalem and actually makes its way all the way down to the lowest spot on earth, which is the Dead Sea, several kilometers away. I mean, not a huge distance, but uh, several kilometers away, it makes its way down to the Dead Sea. And the Kidron Valley was the place, as would have been the case with most elevated cities in ancient times, where people would throw their garbage. So you'd throw your garbage and uh, people that maybe were unknown, maybe found on the streets dead, didn't have someone to buy them a tomb or bury them. Their bodies were thrown there. Dead animals were thrown there. And uh, at certain points in time, pagan nations sacrificed their children to idols there. And it was always kind of a place that was you know, stinky, smelly. There was often a continual fire burning there. And it was just kind of a, a gross place to be. So... The, most theologians believe that the, the imagery of hell as burning and garbage and refuge, refuse and just kind of yuckiness is a lot of that imagery is drawn from the Jewish people's familiarity with, with the Kidron Valley and the, the fire and the smell and the smoke and, and all of that kind of stuff that was coming off there. So physical Jerusalem in an elevated position, Kidron Valley in the valley. And in a in a similar way, what you're going to see is you got a picture in your head the the, uh, the image of an elevated new city, the New Jerusalem, and references to the Lake of Fire or Gehenna or Hell or Hades. So the fi- the physical geography of ancient Israel and modern Israel forms the backdrop for the spiritual imagery of the new heavens, the new earth, and hell which is outside of the city gates, which is away from the new Jerusalem, which is removed from the holy place, removed from the light of God, and so forth and so on, okay? So judgment, as we enter into chapter 21 then, what are the themes? Judgment has passed. God has uh, consigned hell, Hades, death, the lake of fire, uh, or, or, or hell, Hades, and death to the lake of fire. Unbelievers have been sent to the lake of fire. And now the, the new order of things is going to be uh, unfolded. Now, we tend to be linear in our thinking, very linear. So if, you ha- if I describe to you an event, and then another event, and then another event, and then another event, and I describe those four events to you in order, you will probably assume that event number one comes before event number two, which comes before event number three and event number four. And yet in Hebrew way of thinking and Hebrew way of writing, sometimes they would introduce an event and then introduce another event, but there might be an aspect in that second event that actually comes before the first event or something you're learning about in the fourth event, there's an aspect of it that takes place before the second event. And I wanted to, to uh, mention that to you because even though we've already read about the finality of the great white throne judgment, nevertheless, we're going to encounter at least a couple more episodes of references to judgment in chapters 21 and 22. And it's not meant to be taken chronologically. It's not meant to suggest that once we get to heaven, there's going to be another judgment and then there's going to be another judgment. But it's as if the writer, as he's unpacking his vision of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, takes the the mind of the reader back to this previous event which he's referenced already. 
So I hope that helps you to understand why, I mean, we're into 21 and 22. We don't want to talk about death and damnation and judgment anymore, but it, it kind of pops up a little bit a couple times. So Satan has been judged, and chronologically Satan's been judged. Death has been judged. Sin has been judged. And now for the first time in Revelation, there's no more fear. There's no more, uh, things are positive chronologically. Again, there's going to be some references to judgment, but chronologically we're now past uh, the outbreak of evil, the rule of Satan, the rule of evildoers. Rewards and blessings are now being introduced. Or more accurately, the fullness of God's rewards and blessings are being introduced. And this passage then answers the question, what is the heavenly reality going to be like? I, th- I think at times we all wonder what heaven's going to be like. And we should probably recognize at the onset that we won't really fully understand what it's like till we get there. But we have some sneak peeks into what heaven's going to be like. And you could probably remember it this way. It's basically the Garden of Eden on steroids. And that's meant to be humorous, but there's some truth to it because you will notice that the last three chapters of Genesis heavily reinterpret or reinvent or reintroduce what we read about in the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So we encounter God speaking again to people. We encounter God dwelling with people. We encounter a tree of life. We encounter kind of an Edenic state. So it's back to Eden again. First, maybe it's a helpful helpful for you to remember. The first three chapters of the Bible have a lot to do with the last three chapters of the Bible. So verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 21, then read as follows. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So you can see there that there is a theme of radical renewal. And what are the three new things we're introduced to? There's a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Here we have an introduction to the city of God. And what is it contrasted to in the book of Revelation? Most significantly, it's contrasted to Babylon and Rome. So we've already read about cities in Revelation. That's not a new theme. But Babylon, metaphorically referring to Rome, of course, is a city that we've read a lot about, especially in the past several chapters. Earlier in the book, we were introduced to seven other cities within which churches live. Some, there was some pluses there. There was some minuses. So we have some cities that are sort of you know, framed positively, some that are sort of a little of each, and some that are really bad. 
So the theme of cities is woven through the book of Revelation. But this city is drastically different than all other cities that we've experienced because there is not a shred of evil in this city. So the heavenly vision then, theologically, is that heaven will be completely and utterly and totally pure. Not 99.999%. You ever get those wipes, those antibacterial wipes? It's like the 0.1% you're a little worried about because it only kills 99.9% of germs. Now, heaven is 100% pure, and the writer of Revelation will make it very clear, saying this in the positive and the negative, that there will be no evil there. No evil will ever be allowed in. So, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever thought this way, but it's crossed my mind before in the past. I thought, well, I wonder if heaven's going to be like Eden again, but, you know, maybe couple thousand years in, someone's going to screw up and it's going to start all over again. Uh, But reading passages like this affirm to me that that's not going to happen. That this is going to be Eden on steroids and there's not going to be any snake dangling from any tree. There will be a tree of life, but there will not be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we will be truly in uh, an, an eternal state of perfection forever. When it comes to the language of a new heavens and a new earth, there's two, two basic views that um, have been proposed as to how new these will be. The one is that it's new uh, approximately the, to the same degree as our bodies will be made new. So in Christian theology, we don't, believe that the bodies that we have now will be literally annihilated, cast aside, and an entirely new one will be formed. Rather, we believe in a bodily resurrection, that the bodies that we have now will in some way, shape, or form be reinvigorated and renewed. And of course, scientifically, I don't even know how that's going to work because some people have been dead for a long time and they've disintegrated into what we would consider nothingness. But somehow God is going to bodily resurrect these bodies that we have and make them new. So there'll be new bodies, but looked at from a different perspective, they're not really new at all. They're resurrected bodies. So then there are some that have suggested that the new heavens and the new earth will actually be this world, these stars, this universe, kind of in a resurrected state, stripped of all its impurities and made new. And then the second view is, is more radical, and that is that li- in the most literal sense, all of the created matter that is in the universe now will be gone, and God literally will make all things new. Now, I mean, you don't start a new church over your interpretation of that. It's not really all that significant, but I would tend to hold to the second one, that it literally is a, a radical renewal, because the language prior is, you know, the, the, the old heavens, the old earth will be wiped away. So it seems kind of dramatic language. So I think what we're dealing with here is not a resurrected earth and a resurrected heaven, but an absolutely new, new heavens and new earth. In the text, you might have noted at the end of verse 1 the phrase, and the sea was no more. How many of you would like a holiday by the sea right about now? (laughs) A few of you. You like to go to like 
the Dominican Republic or Cuba or wherever and kind of sit out on the beach, Florida. So why, if, if a sea is something that we generally like and are attracted to, and heaven is a place where there's fullness of joy, why do you think that it says there's no sea? I mean, that almost seems like a negative. We'll start with Jim, and then we'll have his father-in-law correct him. Okay, <laughs> go ahead, Jim. <laughs> you both put up your hands at the same time, so. Okay, good. That's... Uh, that is moving us in the right direction. Glenn, is he correct? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just thought of in the Garden of Eden, pre-flood, was there even seas then? Wasn't there an idea that there was an atmosphere with leaves and an idea that nobody really knew what rain was? So mm. in that sense, that kind of just prepared the entire human ecosystem. Really yeah. So I don't know if you heard him at the back, but he was asking about whether there was sort of seas in, in the Garden of Eden. So the um, best answer to that is God says he separates water from earth, and that could be a separation this way or this way or both. There probably were bodies of water, but they were probably lower because the water that would have been part of the flood canopy or the firmament would have been brought down in the flood and raised the sea levels. So we're probably dealing with more land mass pre-flood, but nevertheless bodies of water. I mean, if you took all of the water off out of the seas and kind of put it around the earth, you'd probably have too thick of a body of water for even sunlight to get through. So when you think of the firmament around the earth or the water canopy, which seem, seems to be described there in, in Genesis, it's probably more like a heavy mist rather than you know literal water that you'd put your hand into. But that is... Uh, you know, something obviously we're thinking about. So I'm going to suggest a few different things to you. One is along the lines of what we've already heard, that Israelis were land lovers. And the water, understandably, was scary. It was a place where people drowned. I mean, think of the size of boats now compared to then. I don't know if you've ever seen some of these shows on Discovery Channel, but some of these huge boats they're building, they're just unbelievable. Uh, with, I don't know how many, whatever, trillions of tons of cargo on it. And these things are guided into harbors using all sorts of computerized equipment because, you know, they're this far off the bottom or whatever. But, I mean, a big boat back even in, uh, you know, the New Testament era probably wouldn't have been more than maybe a couple hundred feet long. So lots of boats went down in stormy seas. The Jews in general, they were fishermen, but where were they fishing? Sea of Galilee. They weren't probably fishing too much out in the Mediterranean. Maybe some were, but it wasn't a big thing for them. There were other uh, ethnic groups that had learned fishing skills better than them. But there's a sense of fear attached to it. But if we just stay in the book of Revelation, it helps us to answer the question. Because in the book of Revelation, the sea is not good. Who comes from the sea? There's the beast from the sea. So we have the beast rising from the sea in Revelation 13. And then when it talks about the, the resurrection in Revelation 20, they're coming from, some of them are coming from the sea. The sea gave up its dead. 
So there's a sense in which the sea is associated with death. I mean, you could also argue, well, wouldn't the land be too because there's people dead there? Yeah, of course. But at least a couple references to um, uh, the sea in the book of Revelation are associated with fear or death or even the satanic. So the sea is no more. Now what there is, we'll discover this in a bit, there's rivers, but there's no sea. So there's water, but there's no sea. And then we have another interesting image, and that is in verse 2, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Does that strike you as a little odd at all or out of place? And if so, why or why not? Usually when you think of a bride and groom in New Testament theology, you think of what? Christ in the church. You don't normally think of the New Jerusalem and Christ. So what do we have here? Basically, we have the, probably the reuse of a metaphor. So we, there's really no, no need to spend a lot of time trying to make the connections between the bridegroom imagery of Christ and the church and the imagery of Christ and the New Jerusalem, unless in some way the New Jerusalem intrinsically represents the church. But rather, it's probably just the reuse of a working metaphor. So in, in one hand, we have the, the, the bridegroom metaphor referring to us and Jesus. And of course, it does stress purity. And on the other hand, we have the, uh, the bride and the groom sort of pictured as the new Jerusalem and presumably Christ as the bride, also stressing purity. So why is the image or metaphor reused? Probably to stress purity because bride and groom do a pretty good job expressing the idea of purity at least they should the other thing that's interesting is that it's described as coming down and i i think i would agree with um alan johnson in the commentary i read to you last week that that's probably meant to draw out the idea of it being a gift it's coming down because we we think of god as elevated we've talked about that the last couple sundays is lifted up and when he comes down he delivers either judgment or gift so the new Jerusalem that is presented to the people of God, the righteous, those who've come through the tribulation, those who've persevered as a gift. We also have another interesting uh, statement made here, and that is that the dwelling place of God is with man. And you should think to yourself, well, I thought it already was. So we have a temple preceded by a tabernacle under the old covenant. And God dwelt there. He had a dwelling place with man. And then in New Testament theology, we have a Holy Spirit who dwells in his people. We have a Christ who walks the earth for three years. Well, 33 years, but as Messiah, manifested as Messiah for three years. Christ with us. We're celebrating this in the Christmas season, the incarnation of Christ. So on one hand, you might think, well, how is heaven really going to be any different than the here and now? Because I mean, we sort of understand that, best if we, unless we misread scripture, that doesn't God already dwell with man? In a sense, doesn't he already dwell with the unbeliever? Because God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. So it, it causes us to sort of ask ourselves, you know, what that means and, and how that all works. Um, let's look for a moment at uh, Leviticus chapter 26. 
And we're going to focus in on verse 11 to uh, 13. Leviticus uh, 26. So if you have a a study Bible, the the heading at the beginning of chapter 26 is Blessings for Obedience. That's a, a great title because really that's what this is about. It's all about what God's going to do to those that worship him and not images and idols and the like. So this is all part of a blessing passage. And then if you look at uh, verse 11, it says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you or hate you or despise you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So there is a sense even in the old covenant prior to the incarnation of Christ, prior to Pentecost, that God presents himself as one who walks with people. So maybe the question to ask then, well, what, what advantage is there to heaven? And the best answer for that is, again, to go back to this idea of Eden on steroids. It is true, we believe it by faith, that God walks with us, that God is with us. And there are times in our spiritual lives when we, we feel that in a mystical way, in an experiential way, in an unexplainable way. We teach it and preach it, and it makes sense within our theological system that God is with us. So it, it makes sense. It's kind of a necessary doctrine, secondly, and we experience it. But let's be honest. I mean, the atheist asks a question that needs to be answered. Well, have you seen him? Have you touched him? Have you smelt him? You know, have you heard him? How do you know that there is a God? And you know, then you, you kind of got to get into this dance about what true knowledge is and that knowledge goes beyond the senses that we have in this world and divine revelation and personal encounter and a whole bunch of other stuff. But what the atheist is is zeroing in on is that there is a sense in which in this world we know God in a different way. We experience his presence in a different way than I would experience Dave's presence in my life or Joyce's presence in my life or our presence in one another's life. So you think of um, uh, you know, Paul's words in uh, 1 Corinthians where he talks about you know, n- now we, we see as in a mere dimly. But in the future, I'll see more fully. So yes, we, we believe God is with us and we've encountered God, but it's only a foretaste of what is to come. So it's not that God is not with us now, but that God will manifest his presence with us in the most real of ways in the heavenly kingdom. So we walk by faith, not by sight, but this might sound strange to you. There's not going to be a lot of need for faith in heaven because you're just going to know God in all of his fullness. You won't have to believe anything you can't see because God will just be there. And also because of the absence of sin, there's not going to be any doubt 
So in that sense, you don't really need faith. I know it always sounds weird, like you won't need faith in heaven. Well, you really, you won't if you think about it. Because you will have such a, a, an obvious, real, capital R, capital E, capital A, capital L, encounter with God that you, you in all of your fullness with your entire being will know him and he will know you. So that's something that's kind of cool and uh, something that we should look forward to. And then we have uh, God described in language that you would almost expect um, uh, to be applied to a great mother. It's almost motherly kind of language. Where it says, he, this is verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. There's no more mourning, crying, pain. The former things are passed away. God is presented here in a very gentle way, wipe, as, if, as if he's wiping the tears away from a child that's fallen off their bike and skinned their knee. So there's a, tender, there's a tender aspect to God. It doesn't say there's not going to be any more crying. It says there's not going to be any more crying and it's God going to be wiping the tears away. So it's, it's sort of even a greater gift than a lack of tears. It's God actually wiping away the tears. So very much of an active hands-on God, very much engaged with, with his people. And because then he's going to wipe, the, it's because he wipes the tears from our eyes that the result is no more crying. But it's just a little more intimate than just saying, well, there's no more crying. He's also wiping the tears away. So that's, uh, I've just put this all into the heading of a new world that awaits us. And then declarations of promise and judgment is my heading for verses 5 to 8. And it reads as follows. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So here we have in verse 5, not the only, but one of the few references in Revelation to God as the speaker. Who's usually the speaker? Well, who's usually the one giving revelation or the ones? Angels. So it's usually when it's when you're going to hear from God, you're actually hearing through the conduit of an angel in the book of Revelation. Just like most of the time in the Old and New Testament, you're either hearing from a prophet or an apostle, sometimes from God directly. But usually it's through an intermediary. So even in our theology, we think of our access to the Father as through the intermediary known as Jesus Christ. But it seems that now the language, I mean, there's still going to be angels. They're going to be doing some talking. But it seems as we move closer and closer to the end, it's almost, I'm kind of thinking, maybe it's just happenstance, but I'm kind of thinking it's almost as though we're we're being introduced to, to this idea that in an increasing way, it's now going to be back to God and me and Eden, like it was supposed to be at the beginning. So I won't need to 
put my name on a list in heaven, uh, run it through Michael and say, can I make an appointment to talk to God or can you sort of talk to God for me? I won't need to go to Paul and say, hey, you sort of, I mean, you, you got to write some books of the Bible, so do you mind having a chat with God for me? There's like a direct access thing. And there's going to be that, almost that, again, that Garden of Eden thing where God walks with the people in the cool of the day, kind of an, kind of an experience. So God is the one who speaks, and this stresses not only his personal uh personal encounter with us but just his presence in the new order verse six anything jump out at you in verse six does it echo or bring to mind anything else you've ever read in the bible that's kind of significant (laughs) okay i hear a few people whispering it jesus said it is finished Now, it's actually a different Greek word here, but it's the same idea. It's a synonym. And he says, it is done. And I suspect that that is supposed to bring the cross back into my thinking when I read that. That it is done. But, I mean, it's really done this time. And then right on the heels of this it is done, which is by definition a time statement. It's complete. There's time words attached to God. Alpha and omega. What's the alpha and omega? Beginning and the end. First, last letter. It's like the Greek equivalent of the A to Z. And then the beginning and the end. Just a restatement of it. So we have descriptions of God here as being absolutely and sovereignly in control. He's beginning, he's end, it's done. He's alpha, he's omega. And attached to that then immediately is the statement, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So I can think of a lot of situations in the Bible where water comes in and I mean, it's the, the, when the people were thirsty in the wilderness or different springs they found or different wells that were clogged up that they had to dig out. I mean, water's an important, we all know we need water to survive. It's an important commodity in, in life. And uh, here, in a very spiritual sense, God uses water as an image of quenching or satisfying us in the, in the greatest possible way. Now, this language is reminiscent of Jesus' words. We'll go back to John 7. Take a quick look there. John 7, 37 to 39. Oh, I mean, I wonder why I couldn't find it. I was in Luke. Okay, getting to the right book here. John seven thirty seven to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Obviously, he's using metaphor. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we all know pre-Pentecost there was no indwelling spirit. So again, reminiscent, fullness, spirit, you know, I mean, that was huge. That was a huge leg up to what all believers prior to Pentecost had experienced in that the Spirit came on, the Spirit came upon, but never in or into. So Pentecost kind of takes the spiritual experience to a whole new level, and the language of water is used to help us to understand that, thirst being quenched, and now it's taken to the ultimate level where in heaven, Any need, any deficit is going to be filled up. Any longing, any desire. Now, when you think longings and desires, you've got to separate the good ones from the bad ones. Because you may long for things in heaven that if you think it through long enough are actually carnal. I don't know, like uh, being more famous than God. But true, true spiritually driven needs and desires, whatever those are, To be loved unconditionally, to have hope. Those true, pure desires will be filled up in Christ, in our encounter with Him. And then verses 7 to 8, this is an example of where the writer is moving us forward helping to introduce us to heaven, but then he jumps back and you think, oh, I thought these guys were already judged. Why do we have to hear about cowards and idolaters and all that again? I think it's in order to provide a very clear contrast between what heaven is going to be like, who will be there, and who will not be there. So we have a contrast of two groups. Those that are satisfied with Christ Those that have conquered are declared to be those that will be God's sons. Now, is this a works-oriented theology? Uh Uh-oh. Was Paul wrong? It says to those who have conquered. Why conquered? Well, just a few chapters earlier, we're reading about tribulation. So this specific reference of conquering is probably intended... Not so much to get us into conversations about, well, do we actually work our way into heaven? Conquer sin? It's probably not to be thought of in that salvific sense. But because we just read about a tribulation, just a few thoughts back, and time and time again, God calls those people to overcome. It's, it's, these are hope-filled words. When, if you overcome the tribulation, look what awaits you instead of taking us immediately down the direction of the Catholics, right, or the Protestants, right. It's probably not intended to bring us into that kind of a conversation. That's an important conversation, but it's just probably not one that the writer is thinking about right now. Rather, it's intended to uh, encourage those who are going through tribulation, both first-century Christians, present-day Christians, and tribulation Christians, persevere, 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 because this is what awaits you. And then that is contrasted to a whole series of sins. And we're not going to unpack all of these, but one that I will make mention of is the first one, cowardly. I think, well, 
well, the guy's a little bit scared. Like, what, he can't go to heaven? Like, it's not exactly a damnable sin, is it? Think of like the cowardly lion or something like that. So what is this word um, cowardly intended to refer to? Well, it's intended to refer to a specific kind of cowardice. Jesus said, those that deny me before men, I will deny before my father. So the cowardliness that's being talked about here is the same kind of cowardliness that he's warning against in tribulation. So this kind of cowardliness is the, is the person that says, well, I'm a Christian, but I will, not, I will not profess that. I'll sort of pull a Peter or pull a Judas and deny it before men. Or specifically for those who've come through the tribulation, those who have taken the mark of the beast or bowed their knee to the beast for fear of their own lives. That probably is the kind of cowardice that is specifically in mind here. And if you think of that kind of cowardliness, and it's like, okay, yeah, that, I could see how that's sort of on par with sorcery and you know, murder and that kind of thing. I mean, that, that's pretty bad. I mean, that's Christianity 101 is you need to be able to profess your faith or you're not the real deal. And then, again, just a series of other ones. Faithless is probably closely tied to that. Detestable, I mean, that could mean a whole bunch of things. Murderers, he may, in this specific situation, have those that have taken the lives of saints because there's been a heavy emphasis on martyrdom in the text. And sexual immorality, I mean, that refers to a whole slew of sexual sins. Sorcery, which is devil worship or anything demonic. Idol worship, liars, and so forth. So we have a contrast of uh, two groups. And then in verses 9 to 26, I'm going to sort of deal with this as one large chunk. Essentially, this is a sneak preview of life in the new city. Or I shouldn't say that. Let me rephrase. A sneak, pre- a sneak uh, preview of what the new city is like. Life in the new city is what is talked about after that. But now this focuses on descriptions of the city. After we get through that, there's then descriptions of life in the city. So let's look at what the city looks like or how it's described here. And you will notice a heavy emphasis on metaphor uh, in this section as well. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven, who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me. So let's just pause here and say this. He's not about to dump them out. But for whatever reason, John perceives that the angel who had done that previous, this is the angel who's now come to him. And he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels, and on the gates were the names of 12 tribes. So 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 names, a lot of 12s there, were inscribed. And then there's three on the east, three on the north, three in the south, three in the west. And the wall of the city had 
12, there's that word again, foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. A lot of 12s, eh? Must just be circumstantial. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. So back in the day, they didn't use a Mastercraft tape measure. They would use rods. And those rods were at a set length, and that's how you'd you know, measure things, head over heels or however you'd lay them down. And they measured the city and its walls and uh, gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, so it's, it's a square. And he measured the city with his rod, uh, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement. That's around 18 inches per cubit, which is also an angel's measurement. So there it's not even really literal because it's, it's an angel's measurement. Um, generally, the cubit was kind of like this, right? Maybe the angels had long arms. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, as clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Normally, you don't put a lot of energy in a foundation, but the foundation has jewels in it. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, and he kind of goes through a whole series of different jewels. I won't read them all. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. You know how big an oyster is? These are either really little gates or really big oysters they came from. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now notice the word like. Again, this is imagery. So you don't, you, don't have to say, you don't have to deny the authority of Scripture to say, well, I don't really believe that when I get to heaven and physically set hands on a gate made of pearl. It's imagery. Because it's unlike anything we will have experienced. And he who is seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. Or sorry, what did I do here? Sorry, forget it. I'm just making stuff up. I thought I flipped ahead and I went to the top of my page. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun to shine on it. Ah, that reminds me of Isaiah. For the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, nor will there be night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Well, there's a whole lot of things we could talk about. Let me share a few things with you, and then you can ask questions. So we have bride language in verse 9. One, th one thing that I find just kind of interesting about this is it says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And again, when, whenever I've read about bride and groom language prior to this in the New Testament, I always think church in Christ. So uh, it could be that Jerusalem itself is strictly a symbol of the church. That really he, he's not thinking about a space or a place at all, that space and place is going to be irrelevant. 
or just not something that interests us, but that the, the Jerusalem is, in a sense, the church. Or it could be that because Jerusalem is holy and elevated and Jerusalem almost takes on like a personality of its own. It's like people have affection, heart affection for Jerusalem, even today, Jewish people. It's like, it's just, it just bricks and pavement. And why, why would you love something that's, it's an inanimate object? Because everything that has taken place there and the promises of God being anchored and the temples having been there and Christ having been crucified there, all, there's just so much history and story and uh, redemption connected to it that it's almost taken on the image of a person. So it could be that he's just playing off that, that heart desire that Jewish Christians would have had for that place. It stirred their hearts. It was special to them. But of more importance than trying to figure that out, I think, is the contrast between the bride and the great prostitute. And I'm thinking that's deliberate. Now the imagery of the great prostitute makes far more sense to me. Out of all of the images that... God could have delivered to John to try to describe this world, be it Rome, Babylon, or the secular, horrible world within which we live. Why, why choose like a sexual image? Why choose the image of a prostitute? Why not choose the image of a thief or a, a terrorist or a murderer? Why choose such a sexually charged metaphor like a great prostitute to describe the world within which we live and to warn us against it. Because a prostitute is the direct opposite, or you could say it another way, the ultimate twisting and misshaping of a bride. In, in the bridal imagery, there's sexuality as well, but it is pure and it is holy and it is covenantal and it is selfless and it is giving and in the prostitute image, there is abuse and lust and nothing's for free. There's always strings attached and on and on. So it's like the, 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 the evil cousin to the bride is the great prostitute. And, and again, I think that's deliberate that these two images now make a whole lot more sense when we compare we label the world within which we live in the world order that's opposed to God as a prostitute, but the new order is like a bride. And of course, you have to have a biblical understanding of a bride, not a secular one, to fully appreciate it. But I think that's a really neat that that language is, is employed here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's some yeah. Yeah, I mean there's there's also radical unity between Christ and his church. Uh it's very spiritual now. It's real, but it's spiritual, it's intangible, but in the future it's going to be all the more real. So And then we have out of many descriptions, the one I want to maybe spend the most time on is the description of the lofty walls. 
Windsor's not walled, but it's safe, relatively speaking. The great cities of the world are not walled cities anymore. We don't even think that way. We don't think, well, we've got to get a wall up around Windsor or Chatham might come down and try to attack us. Not that they have a chance. <laughs> Why? Because it's, it's, just, it's a different culture. It's a different time. It's, it's a different way of thinking. I mean, they can just drop bombs on us. I don't care how big the wall is around the city. They just fly overhead with a, a jet and drop a couple bombs, and who cares how big your wall is? But they didn't have those. So then you think, well, why would God then talk about walls in the heavenly kingdom? That's kind of archaic. Well, it's true. It is archaic. But keep in mind the imagery. God is using language to accommodate, first and foremost, the first century reader. The original recipients of the book were the first ones to read this. So will there be a literal physical wall around the New Jerusalem? Probably not. But what we have here is the ideals of the first century thinker being appealed to through the imagery of the text. So we have to sort of translate this into our own. Because they couldn't fathom a secure city without a wall, whereas we don't see the need for walls anymore. So the imagery, and again, this is in keeping with the kind of literature we're dealing with, is symbolic rather than literal. And what does it speak of, ultimately? Security, protection, and we're going to, we've already seen this, but we'll see it again, that this is a distinctive people. This is distinct from those outside the wall, kind of the, the Kidron Valley folks, those that are in the lake of fire, down the hill and across the valley. Kidron Valley, by the way, separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So when you think of Jesus going to the Mount of Olives and praying, that was on the other side of the Kidron Valley. So he had to cross the Kidron Valley to get there. And then just, it's not that far. It's like from here to the end of, it's like from here to here on church, maybe closer. So notice the 12s, 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 names, 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles perhaps being referenced here. Hey, we often talk about the, the number seven as being the number of perfection. It is a number of perfection, but number 12 is used just as often, if not more, in Revelation. So the opposite of 666 could be 777, or it could be 1212. Because 12 is a highly symbolic, highly holy number in apocalyptic literature. And while it could refer, it may allude to the 12 tribes, it may allude to the 12 apostles. Um, primarily, it probably stresses perfection, which by definition stress holiness and completeness. If it refers to the people of God, be it the 12 tribes or the 12 apostles, it certainly doesn't refer to them exclusively, but would also refer by extension to all who have benefited from the holiness and perfection and completeness of God's redemptive work, notably the elect community, us. 
who, whose lives and destinies have been built on the work of Christ on the cross. So the new city then, with all this use of twelves, is a place that is portrayed as holy, complete, final, and all the shadow symbols. What do I mean by shadow symbols? All the sacrifices, the temple itself, the holy of holies, the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible, the visible church, us. These are just shadow symbols of ultimate greater realities. And those ultimate greater realities are going to find their full expression in Christ. Now, here's where we sort of make a... a uh, Here's where we get ourselves into, into trouble when it comes to our faith. Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. So in our heads, we're like, okay, well, that means that um, it's sort of, to be a Christian, you sort of, how do I put this? You sort of need to rely upon the lesser sense or the, the lesser experience. So we think, well, we hear people say, if I could see Jesus, if I could uh, touch him, I mean, Thomas, if I could put my hand in his side, I would believe. So in our heads, because we're used to experiencing reality using the eyes and the hands and the ears, we almost think of the fullness of reality, track with me, the fullness of reality as that which we can experience using our senses. And faith is, I mean, it's precious and it's valuable, but it's, it's kind of, I think a lot of Christians even think this, it's kind of like the next best thing. Are you following me? It's like the next best. It's important, but I'd, I'd rather be able to see, touch, smell, and hear Christ than just trust him by faith. However, these passages actually stretch that worldview and that notion and suggest to us that it's the stuff that we can see and taste and touch and smell and hear that actually is the lesser reality. And the greater reality is the heavenly reality. And tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, and hearing is kind of a, a cheap knockoff of that. So really, we're living lives in the shadow world. I don't want to sort of get all Plato on you here, but... We're sort of living lives in the shadow world and reality, we'll just put it in all caps, reality in the fullest sense. You've actually not even fully experienced it yet. So you're alive in the here and now, but you will be alive in the future. You see now, but you will see more clearly in the future. You hear now, but you'll hear more clearly in the future. This is the shadow world within which we live. And the heavenly world is not a, 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 a cheap second, secondary thing, a, a knockoff, a, sort of a lesser. It's a greater. And that's how we're supposed to think of it. So then, with that in mind, walking by faith is actually giving us a taste of a higher reality, not a lesser one. So one, what Thomas should actually have said is that I'd rather have faith than see. And that's what we should say too. Because when we choose to believe the unseen, which we've encountered on a deeply spiritual and sometimes unexplainable level, we're sort of getting a little bit of a, a lick, a little bit of a foretaste 
of something that is truer than anything you've ever experienced in the here and now. See? Does that resonate with you guys at all? Hopefully it's helpful. So the uh, heaven is not the shadow of this world, it's vice versa. And then we have stones and beauty. They're mentioned, stones and beauties, beautiful symbols. Uh, sorry, we have stones and beautiful symbols in the form of various precious jewels. And uh, I didn't take the time to do this, but there's been lots of people that have tried to uh, understand the significance of all these jewels. And maybe, maybe there is some deep significance there. There's a lot of opinions. Some people think that they mirror the 12 stones in the breastplate of the high priest representing the 12 tribes. But then if you sort of study it out, there's some dissimilarities to the Old Testament. Um, others of them have tried to tie them into signs of the zodiac. So there's been a lot of different uh, ideas here. Minimally, they express beauty. They express not wealth, but the holiness of heaven. And I want to stress that because heaven is described, you know, gold and pearls and you're like, man, I'm a cat burglar. I want to go there. But the emphasis in heaven in, in describing these things is not the wealth of heaven, but it's the, more the beauty and holiness of God's glory. That's what these things symbolize. Most commentators would, would teach you that. Verse uh, 22 and following, um, which basically is about there being no temple there, God being the sun. We'll make a couple comments about that. This starts to move us in the direction of what life is going to be like. So why would there be a temple if God is not localized? Why would there be a temple if there's no need for sacrifice? Why would, be a, why would there be a temple when there's no physical, like human high priest? There's no priesthood in that sense. Everybody has full and unfettered access to God. So that's why there's no temple. And then the reason why there's no sun and moon is because of the Shekinah glory of God. What is the Shekinah glory of God? We talk about the Shekinah. What is that, Joyce? It's overwhelming and just an unbelievable state. Mm. It's, it's light in a, a way that's unimaginable. When you think of the tabernacle or the temple, it's interesting that there's the equivalent of light bulbs in the courtyard. There's a, there's a candle, a candelabra. There's, there's candlesticks. But in the holy of holies, there's no, there's no instrument or f furnishing that provides light. Why? So the high, the high priest goes in there, how can he see? Yes, correct. So you got a, a roof and walls, but he can still see in there because of the Shekinah glory of God. And that idea is expanded, put on steroids. In heaven, there's not even a sun, there's no moon because God himself is the light. And this is a beautiful picture too of God's sustaining of the universe Again, this world is just shadow. The sun and the moon are just shadows of ultimate reality. And then there's also a mention of nations walking in and kings of the earth. This is interesting because you sort of wonder, like, is there going to be countries? And 
is there actually going to be kings there? Like some people are still going to have to listen to some guy? You know, is that how it's going to work? No. Although I wouldn't be surprised that there will still be what we would call ethnicity there. Um, in the sense that we'll probably, you know, more or less look like we do now with all warts and bumps and pimples and all issues removed. Everybody here will look like Tom Cruise or, <laughs> or me. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I couldn't resist. And, um, but I, would, I wouldn't be surprised there's still various skin tones and eye colors. You know, in this world, it, it's so stupid if you think about it, that we were prejudiced against one another because of these things. And, you know, history has shown us that, uh, I mean, human beings pick fights over skin pigment. And, and think, it's, it's, it's ridiculous if you... Not only is it morally repulsive, but it's just stupid. Uh, these are not; these are neutral issues. These are these should be non-issues. And so, perhaps, perhaps the the idea of nations is not so much that we're going to be divided up into different groups. It literally, in the purest way, will be a non-issue. But maybe there will be all the, ref, you know, all the different colors and shades and kinds of hair and all that in heaven that that we see here on earth, but all the sin and prejudice and that will be removed, which I think w would be pretty cool. And in terms of kings of the earth, it's, it's not that there's going to be literal kings there that are set up over others, but, but that uh, prior to this in Revelation, the kings rallied against Christ at the beginning of and the end of the millennium, at Armageddon and at Gog and Magog. But now the imagery of kings being opposed to the king of kings, it's gone because even the kings, who are not actually kings anymore, are also bringing their glory into God. Nobody's lording it over anybody. So I don't think that there's going to be necessarily kings there. Although it's possible that there might be places of prominence for those that have served God well kind of tying into the whole rewards theology. It's possible that there will be eternal places of prominence. Now, if there is places of prominence, there will never be a sense in which they will be played off anybody else. And I'm not sure how this would work, but even if there were different places of prominence, there would never be regret. And if there are places of prominence, there would never be, well, I'm better than you. N somehow none of that would be there, but it is possible that in some way there will be greater reward and therefore greater places of prominence for those that have you know been martyred or you know given themselves in an extra special way to the work of Christ possible that there's some of that coming through there clearly Matthew 28 is going to be fulfilled when Jesus sent his early disciples out it was a global commissioning to all the nations and apparently all the nations are going to be there now, we've got to talk about nations. Like, what, what's a nation? Well, I mean, it, that changes. I mean, we, we could divide 
a country up into, say, those three different ethnic groups, there's three different nations, and at another point in history, it's all one group. So it's not necessarily along the lines of what we think of nations, but in the mind of God, they're the people from all nations, tribes and tongues will come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean like every micro tribe without exclusion? Probably not, because I don't know how God describes a tribe in his mind, but people from all over the world will have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. And again, instead of kings rallying for war, they submit to God. And instead of having closed gates, there will be open gates. So the gates will be open. It says they will never be shut day or night. There will be no night there. Why? Security. Again, it's emphasizing this concept of security and peace. So let's pause there and uh, we'll take a five or uh, about a five to seven minute break. We'll flick the light switch when, it, when it's time to get back and, um, and then we'll continue on into verse chapter 22. Okay, so um, just one more verse and uh, we're done. Chapter 21. This refers to the absolute purity of the new city, but nothing unclean shall ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This certainly does not mean that there will be evil lurking around it that would even have an access point to it. There's an eternal divide between good and evil. But it just stresses this idea of the absence of evil, I believe, rather than, it's not, in other words, I don't think we should envision a, a, a new city and there's a bunch of bad guys around it, but God just never lets them in. Because previous, the book of life was opened and the people whose names were not in it were consigned to Lake of Fire. So he just, he's doubling back, stressing something that has happened previous to again underscore the point that heaven, the new heavens, the new earth are going to be absolutely distinct from the world within which we live, which is polluted with evil. And then chapter 22, where we're introduced to the river of life and eternity. So as we talked about earlier, there's no sea, but there's a river of life. All the comforts of home were introduced to in verses 1 to 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Looks a lot like the Detroit River, apparently, in the middle of summer. (laughs) Flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Notice it's flowing from... Yeah, oh, sorry, that's glow, not crystal, yeah. <laughs> Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, so uh, this is interesting. So you've got a river in either side of the river, either bank, the tree of life, but it's singular. So you've got a river... I've never seen a tree growing on both sides of the river unless it's a really small river. With its 12, sorry? Or a really big tree. Well, probably what this is, is it's it's, it's intended to communicate a sprawling tree. 
because the tree of life symbolizes life, so it's as if it's everywhere. So the, the, some symbolism doesn't really make a lot of sense if you try to visualize it using the things of this world. But it still communicates the point. It's a singular tree, but it's on both sides of the river because the life which it represents is everywhere. And then it has 12 kinds of fruit. You know, peach trees bear peaches and pear trees bear pears, but you're not going to find a tree that bears you know, cherries and plums and apples. And But this tree has 12 kinds of fruit. And it doesn't have the winter off. It yields its fruit each month. So that's pretty cool. So if you like figs, you like apples, you know, they're all there. In all reality, it's probably not intended to be a literal tree, but everything that it symbolizes. It's perpetual. It's never in dormancy. The life that it gives is, is all-encompassing. It's expansive. It never has a season off. There's no down season. The, all those kind of ideas are probably intended to be captured in the imagery of a tree and a river and various kinds of fruit. And again, the number 12, perfection, completeness. There's no lack of life in heaven. And the, the, the tree of life, which Adam and Eve and all of their descendants were cut off from in, in Genesis as a result of sin, is now re-accessible in that sense. So once again, Eden on steroids. The effects of the fall being reversed in the heavenly kingdom. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is not to mean that we are going to uh, you know, get cuts and bruises or cancer and we just run to the tree and grab whatever leaf, but absolute renewal, uh, no death, no crying. You know, We read about that earlier, and this all kind of is symbolized in this tree. No longer will there be anything accursed. That's definitely drawn from Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the second half, it's all about the curses that result from the fall of mankind. The ground's cursed. Marriage is cursed. The man's cursed. The woman's cursed. We're cursed with death. The snake's cursed. But all there's nothing accursed there. But the throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. We've never read about that before, at least not in that kind of crystal clear language. There's always a sense in the Bible in which God is so holy and perfect, you really you can't see him. No man has seen him. You think, well, kind of, because we've seen him incarnated. But again, the Shekinah glory, no. But now we'll see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. What did we determine about names on foreheads? Probably not so much of just a you know, blue ink tattoo. But ancient cults would, would mark the foreheads of some of their people with symbols or marks. Much like, you know, there's even in certain forms of Hinduism today, there's for the women and for some priests, there's marks in the forehead. It's kind of a symbol of ownership or identification. Here we will be identified with God. 
I kind of doubt we're literally going to have marks in our foreheads, but the, the imagery carries the idea of ownership. The night will be no more. There will be no need, no need for a lamp or sun. So that's kind of repeating some of the stuff we read earlier. For the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's very emphatic. Not forever, but forever and ever. Without end, in other words. Uh, the 12 fruits, I'll make a couple more points. The 12 fruits have variously been interpreted as the 12 tribes, which may have spoken powerfully to the, the dispersed Jews in Asia Minor. But um, I'm not really sure if it is the 12 fruits like what per, if if the 12 fruits refer to the 12 tribes I'm not really sure how they function in the text because fruit is more of an image of uh sustenance or enjoyment so I I, I I'm not sure we we need to go that way with the text again we're dealing with apocalyptic so there's a lot of guesswork but it's probably just intended to mean perfection or completion and everything you need will be there. That's the one I'm going to go with. And again, never dormant. Tree symbolizes the extensive reach of eternal life. And then verses 6 and 7 are words of promise and blessing. So there's an emphasis on God's word being trustworthy and true. It says, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So now we're going all the way back to the beginning of Gen of Revelation, where it, it talks about the soon time events. So now we're coming to the end. God is speaking back about what we've read and reminding us these are the things that soon must take place to get to the end here. Nancy? Yeah. Um, okay, do you mean like redempt, like in terms of salvation, or what are you thinking? No, just new life, new birth. In heaven? Yes, it's over, the world comes to a halt. So there would be no more babies born, you mean? Yes. Correct. Because it talks about there being no more marriage in heaven, uh, in the Gospels, I think in one of the parables, and the eternal kingdom then will be populated by the righteous from all generations, right back to the beginning of time, the remnant, how many that will be? A lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, not all. And those people will worship God forever and ever. But yeah, no, no, no knowledge of others being added. No. Certainly no knowledge of post-mortem salvation. Um, some people teach that, that after you die, you'll have another opportunity to accept or reject Christ. Well, duh, who's not going to? <laughs> but uh, that, is, uh, that is not found in the Bible. I mean, people sometimes take the whole Jesus descending into hell thing that way, but no. In the millennium and the tribulation, yeah. Is it going to be uh, not the same size as 
Yeah. Yeah, you would, according to Nancy, everyone will be 30, 33 years of age. Who knows, right? <laughs> the thing, the, the problem with that theory is they say that you start to die at 25. That your body is, is growing and maturing till 25 and after 25. 25 is over the hill. It's just a lot longer run down the other side. It's like, it's like this. Biologists. Yeah, who knows? Could be. Yeah, so let's say a six-year-old kid comes to faith in Jesus Christ during the tr millennium, uh, end of the millennium or whatnot. Tribulation doesn't really matter because you've got another thousand years to grow up. But, um, or even a child that dies in infancy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but presumably you'll be fully mature physically as well in some way. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. Well, that's an interesting question. <clears throat> it's it sounds nice, and it's very pa it's a very pastoral statement to make at funerals that there will be a sense of reunification, individual to individual, and I I I don't I wouldn't want to be dogmatic about that. I I would say this that if that's not the way it works, we will be a hundred percent okay with that. Like, it'll be a non-issue. But, you know, because our lives are so localized and we're, we're just familiar with this life, you know, my wife, let's say, passes away and, I, you know, I'm mourning her death and I, I look forward to, in a sense, seeing her in heaven. And that's okay for me to long for that. But when I get there, I may go up to her and say, hey, you know, it's great to see you again. But at the same time, I it won't matter to me nearly as much as, my, the beatific vision of God and life with him. You know, whether we'll have buddies in heaven kind of hanging out, hey, you want to go, you know, I don't know, whatever, swim in the river today? Uh, I don't know. Who knows? Well, it won't matter, but if it does matter, it will be true. Because there will be no... One thing we can say with great assurance is that w there will be no little nagging feeling in our stomach that something's not right. Any need for satisfaction will be fully and absolutely met. There's no crying. There's no mourning. Well, in a sense, even loss of a friendship is a sense of mourning. There's none of that. There's no brokenness. There's there's nothing. But um, it might be somewhat minimalistic to look forward to heaven simply to be reunited with the people that we knew well in this world. Um, there will be m more to it than that. Yeah. And if you have a loved one that has died outside of Christ, you will not mourn that in heaven. So if you've had a son, a daughter, a parent, a grandparent that you know was an absolute atheist to the end, you will not mourn that in heaven. It's not that you will be n nonchalant about it, 
but you will be so overcome with God and his holiness, it, it will literally be a non-issue. That, that I'm convinced of. I can't reconcile any other understanding of heaven. A lot of people think about those very practical matters, but I, I, I think we're thinking too humanly when we spend too much time on those things. But, you know, just to carry forward the idea, um, you know, that I preached at the, f- the, the little boy's funeral there a few weeks ago, he's absolutely taken care of. Um, he has a heavenly father that supersedes his earthly one. He has his own room, and he's fine. And mourning is only on our end. It's not on his end, right? So we mourn the reality of death, but... Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes I wonder why. Uh, I, I do think about this. I, I, wonder, I wonder why we humans, even those of us that you know, walk by faith, we do mourn deeply the loss of those that we've loved, even though in some ways, you know, in some ways it's ironic that we do. Because if we, if we really believe they're in a better place, we're only mourning our loss, but then it's almost, well, why am I, why am I so upset when they're so much better off? So there's, I mean, there's that, that, but then the reality is that death is not God's original intention, and it is a result of the curse, and it often happens abruptly or in horrible fashion. Uh, so humanly, we, we get it, but there's, there's those mixed emotions that we always have as humans. However, I mean, Paul captured it well in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, we do not mourn like the rest of men who have no hope. We don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah good point, Jill. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, Dela? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. It's uh, loss of relationship. You know, we're all relational beings, so loss of relationship. Yeah, that, that's probably part of it. Yeah. Anybody else want to comment on that? I mean, it's an interesting topic. I know so many of you have been through the loss of loved ones. I find that at different funerals that the people that really don't have a strong faith or have very little faith, they really mourn. Mm-hmm. And, and they're crying up a storm. And are they crying for themselves or for the person that's being buried? Mm-hmm. I wonder sometimes. Yeah, there was a man at, um, you know, we need to pray for his salvation, but there was a man at Mason Spencer's funeral who was very angry with me for talking about um, him being in heaven because he said, I was, um, what, how did he put it? I was. Uh, rubbing it in his parents' face that he's not with them anymore. And I was thinking, wow, that's, that's a very different worldview. Because <laughs> uh, you guys all know that wouldn't be my intention. And, but I don't think very many people, I don't think anybody of faith would even have, their minds wouldn't even have gone there. But it's actually, I was thinking about it later, that's actually consistent with a God, godless worldview because 
if life is all about the here and now and that's gone, there, there's nothing you can say that's good. Nothing. There's nothing you can say. So, Marilyn, were you going to make a comment, I think? And certainly through, certainly through the scriptures, you know, Jill mentioned Jesus and Lazarus, but certainly through the scriptures, there, there not just with death, but there are many examples of, of um, lament. The Psalms, for example, there's several Psalms that are actually uh, written for the express purpose of helping the people of God mourn. And I mean, I've written nothing else on the board tonight, but I'll write one thing. That the lament psalms all go like this. That's their that's their pattern. They they the downward swoop is life is horrible, life's awful. This is what's happened, and the and the, and the bottom. And all the lament psalms, the writer bottoms out, and he's just absolutely beaten up and destitute and wiped out or whatever the language is, right? He's using to express, I, I'm, I just can't take it anymore. And in the Lament Psalms, at that place of being bottomed out, I can't think of a single psalm where he gets an answer to the question, why? Or an explanation from God as to why it happened. There's, there's never like a rational way in on the emotional angst that the person is experiencing. But that is always when he encounters the who, God. And it's in the encounter with God alone that he's catapulted back out into life. And so there's this process of uh, the theologians of the Psalms call it disorientation and reorientation. You're, you're, the Psalms, the Lament Psalms, there's patterns of disorientation. Then there's an encounter with God. And then they're catapulted back out into life and reoriented for the next phase. And that's the pattern. It just happens over and over again in the Lament Psalms. Now, I mean, you might have 15 verses in the downward and only two in the upward, but that, that's the general pattern of the Lament Psalms. And that's why uh, in my own life, when I process pain or when I try to pastor other people through that, it almost, I, I'm aware of the fact that it almost sounds like super spiritual because people are always looking for real practical nuts and bolts stuff. So I'm very careful the way I unpack this. But I do believe that in this world, Suffering is always intended to introduce us to the who, not to the why. That's my personal belief, and I think it's backed up theologically, that the longer you hang around the question why, the farther you drift from the who, and the, 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 longer, you, you, um, the longer you stay away from the redemptive value that God wants to bring about from your suffering. 
So, Glenn? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Good point. Yeah, it's on the bulletin board. Yeah. 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 There is a grief share course being taught by a Pastor Adrian in the new year, and it's not just for the bereaved, but I mean, you may have gone through loss of employment or you know whatever it is, and it's just. I mean, we grieve over a lot of things. Some of us grieve that, you know, lost relationships. Um, you know, you may have family members with whom you are estranged because you're a Christian, or you may have lost friends at work, or you may have lost a loved one. Or you know, We all have different things that cause us to grieve. And, uh, you know, on, on one hand, we can never fully relate to other people's suffering, and we always mention that. It's always dangerous to say, I know exactly what you're going through. There's too many variables, really, to say that with any honesty. But we all know what suffering is like in some way, shape, or form. And, I mean, whatever your darkest period of suffering is, is your, your darkest period of suffering. And that's as bad as it's ever gotten, right? And for you, it might be a divorce, and for you, it might be a death, and for you, it might be an illness, and for you, it might be, you know, whatever, broken dreams. But I think this is very helpful, that when we focus on the who, just like Job was forced to. I mean, Job's buddy spent a lot of time trying to answer the question, why? God just is like, it's all about the who, really. That's Job in a nutshell. Um, I think it's helpful. Yeah. Okay, good good discussion. So he then says, uh, verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words, the prophecy of this book. This idea has been restated before. In these two verses, we have these basic biblical themes, just basic Bible that is so important. God tells the truth. Therefore, God can be trusted. God speaks to us through messengers. God is returning again, and we are blessed to believe and obey. Those five truths are all right there in, in those couple of verses, and those are pretty foundational truths. So these are words of promise and blessing. And then John's affirmation of the revelation and his worshipful response is the subject of verses 8 and 9. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So he personally testifies to it. Um, let's, let's just go to, uh, let me just check something out here quick. It just kind of came to my mind. I just want to look at 1 John real quick. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this until now, but John's the writer. John's the writer of 1 John. And there's actually similar language that I think is unique to John. John appeals to personal witness when he's trying to, get you to buy into what he's saying, he appeals to his personal experience. And it's very similar, actually, to First John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the so forth. That's a lot of words to drive home the point that he had encountered this. He wasn't speaking like eighth hand. He, he had seen it, heard it, touched it, tasted it, smelled it, all that kind of stuff. And it's just 
interesting that he uses, in a sense, a similar kind of appeal in verse 8. I'm the one that heard and saw these things. So he wants you to know that it, it's a revelation that he's received. And when he heard it and saw them, now this is where I think he's doubling back. I don't, or he could be committing the same sin twice, but I think he's doubling back. We talked about this last week, I believe it was, maybe the week before. He falls down and worships the angel, and the angel says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets. Worship God. So even a devoted believer can fall prey to worship. And here's the problem. Here's the, the admonition for you and me. Two good things. We're probably not immature enough to worship bad things. Worship them. Maybe we are at times. But the idolatry that even the devoted Christian has to look out for is idolatry associated with the things of God, but that aren't actually God. And we identified some of those. It could be your favorite Christian band, your favorite Christian pastor, your favorite Christian teacher, your favorite Christian author, the person that's mentoring you, the church building, you know, whatever. These aren't bad things. They're so closely associated with God, you can sort of take your eyes off God and start to look at those, and that's idolatry. I mean, an angel's a pretty incredible being, admittedly. And if you if one came in this room today and showed you what John was, I mean, you might be tempted to fall down and worship him too, but it would be idolatry. And that angel would point you to worship God. So again, this is either the second time he's doing this or he's doubling back to a previous event as per writing customs of the day. So then verses 10 to 21 is God's response, uh, God's call to respond to this revelation. So how do we respond? Verses 10 and 11, make it available. He said, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, for the sake of time, I won't read it, but Daniel 8, Daniel 12, Daniel's told to seal up the vision. Here he's told to open it up. Because it's, now we're right into the end. So it's very important for people to read it. So this is final, again, emphasizes final revelation in opening it, uh, completion. Uh, when it says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Uh, this, um, this doesn't suggest that uh, you are necessarily doomed to do those things if you've done those things up till now. But this is eschatological. So this is after Great White Throne. So the idea, I think, is that after judgment, your, your debt has been sealed. There's, there's no, there's no post, post-mortem opportunity. So if, you know, if after the Great White Throne judgment, you've been judged to be an evildoer, that's, that's who you are. Filthy, filthy, righteous, righteous, holy, holy. This is the, this is the end. There's no, more, there's no more opportunity for, um, for redemption. Uh, this, you know, one, one other verse kind of speaks a similar truth. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ... Um, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Anyway, you have one opportunity and it's within this life. So you want to 
uh, proclaim it. And then words of warning in light of God's own self. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with you to repay each of you for what he's done. He's the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, the, the pure will be included. The impure will be excluded as the subject of 14 and 15. Blessed are those that wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and enter the city. Again, I think he's doubling back, pulling some of the themes that have revelation prior and pulling them into the present outside of the dogs the sorcerers the sexually immoral the murderers idolaters anyone who loves and practices falsehood so the outside is not to be thought of as like a, a place outside outside of some literal heavenly city but the lake of fire um, and again these people have already been consigned there based on revelation 20 dogs is a derogatory term use of Gentiles, but also symbolically of, um, you know, people who eat from the the refuse pile. I would imagine that if you went to the Kidron Valley and there's a lot of garbage, there'd be a lot of dogs down there nibbling away, right? So it just kind of carries that imagery forward. Uh, the source of Revelation, just to remind us where it's from, here's where Jesus speaks. God's Father presumably spoke earlier, but the Christ speaks here, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So he wants the churches to study and read this. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, Old Testament imagery of the Messiah. There's an invitation to participate in the heavenly blessings in verse 17. This is not an evangelistic verse. This is an eschatological verse. So don't preach it uh, evangelistically. This is not a verse that is re referring to, you know, calling the unbelievers to repentance. This is kind of the, the official invitation for the righteous to come into the city. Uh, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who's thirsty come. But the one who desires to take, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And then there's this warning not to alter the, the revelation. I mean, the, the principle of this next passage applies to all of Scripture, but in fact, it is, in its context, specific to this prophecy, specific to Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the, books of this, the word, book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Um, again, if you think about this a little bit, you might automatically want to go into like saved and lost theology. But you have to ask yourself the question, is that a discussion that John has in mind here? Because you don't want to try to weigh in on a discussion using passages that aren't intended to have anything to do with the discussion. So we're thinking about this book being delivered to churches and he says to the churches, don't take away from it. So I think what he's talking about here, or he's warning against, are false teachers. In the churches, clearly there were times when there were false teachers. And to those false teachers, he gives a very scary warning. Don't mess with this. Don't try to like teach it your way or sort of mix it up here. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it handle it properly so it's, a, it's a probably a, a warning to false teachers which just 
for the sake of interest, kind of wants to take takes my mind in the direction of, well, is this a saved and lost thing? But I don't think that's the intention of the text. Rather, it's focusing on a warning to false teachers not to twist it. And the promise of the imminent return, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus would have been, uh, we don't say this enough. I'm going to start using this language more. Um, I was thinking I might even integrate it into my benediction this week. But uh, we'll see. However the Spirit leads. Um, but this, this would have been language that would have been part of probably most early church services. That at the end they would say, come Lord Jesus, come. And it was just a regular reminder that we actually want him to come back. Sometimes I wonder if Christians in our church really want Jesus to come back soon. Or if it's more like, nah, let me get through marriage and kids and a couple grandkids and a vacation by the sea, and then you can come back. You know. It's kind of selfish, right? But uh, if we have a taste of heaven, and if this world is just a shadow of the one to come, then we should want him to come back real soon and not be thinking about all these other things. Well, I'd like to finish this. I'd like to accomplish that. I'd like to get through this next project. Forget about all that stuff. He might not. <laughs> but he might not. I know it's shocking. Um, you know, every truth has its counter-truth, too, or its balancing truth. And... Um, I mean, we don't know when, but we we should live our lives not only as if he will come back momentarily, but desiring it. So being aware that he might come back anytime soon is one thing, but desiring it maybe is slightly different. But I do think, wh what are the, th sorry, I'm gonna I'll take Dale's question or comment. Yeah. 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 Lots of good things there. Um, that's true. Of course, the ultimate reason and I'm not sure any of us are really there, but I think you'll all nod in agreement this is true. The ultimate reason why we want Jesus to come back soon is so that he might be glorified, so that he might be exalted, so that he might be lifted up, so that people would bow the knee who have not yet done so, even evildoers. So it, it should go beyond, man, my life's getting rough and tough. I want him to come back for me. I mean, that, sure, we're going to think that way, um, but there's... The glory of God is the ultimate goal. Um, the other thing is there's always going to be the unevangelized, and with the population of the world increasing, they're just going to get more. They're gonna, there's going to be more and more. Um, you know, I don't know how many true believers there are on the planet today, but let's be optimistic and say there's a billion out of seven. Well, that's six billion. There weren't even six billion people on the earth in Jesus' day. So as the 
numbers increase, so do the unbelievers. So the, I guess the flip side is if he comes sooner, there's fewer unbelievers, right? Um, and I do cast myself on the sovereignty of God when it comes to that. I do not, we should not rid ourselves of responsibility to evangelize and disciple. But if we believe that it is God, the spirit that ultimately converts, then he will bring in the full number, the full measure prior to his second coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I might have mentioned this earlier in this class where even if you look at the world, um, you know, we have the, the heart bed of Christianity in, in um, Palestine, ancient Palestine, right? And then it sort of, through Paul and the apostles, it kind of comes up into to uh, uh, Western Asia and then up into Europe and then, you know, kind of spreads across Europe and then, I mean, some people say Thomas went into India and maybe some churches planted in India. And then it kind of hops the Atlantic with the Puritans and, and now it's sort of migrating south and back east. So you got growing, a lot of growing churches in s South America and then over in Africa. And, um, so different areas of the world that were previously evangelized sort of become unevangelized. So Canada is is very unevangelized. Uh, like our, in our country, for instance, if you even look at distinct people groups, like um, Francophone people in Quebec are the least evangelized people in the Americas. The least, like from Baffin Island to what's the country at the bottom? Argentina. Argentina. Quebec is the least evangelized. I think it's like point point five or point zero five percent are evangelical Bible believing. Whereas among the Chinese of uh, Chinese population in Canada, I think like twenty or twenty or twenty five percent I read recently or heard recently of Chinese Canadians consider themselves born again Christians. The Chinese are the most evangelized uh, group out of any ethnic group in our country. There's more Chinese per capita that follow the Lord Jesus Christ than whites, blacks, uh, South Asians, any of the others. And in fact, even in our own fellowship, some of our largest churches are uh, Chinese churches in the Toronto area. I think there's one church there, like three, 4,000 people or something. So very large. So. Are the Francophones so unevangelized? That's okay. Because of the stranglehold of the Catholic Church historically, so even in the even in the 1950s into the 1960s, when Baptist missionaries went into Quebec, they were imprisoned in our country. Some of these guys are still alive. Think about that in our country, when Protestant missionaries went into the province of Quebec, they were put in jail for preaching the gospel publicly on the streets. Now, that wouldn't happen anymore, but there's that sentiment is there, right? 
That sentiment, that sentiment is there. In 1989, when um, uh, a Baptist church was planted in LaSalle here, uh, the Catholic priest at one of the churches made public state public, like in front of his congregation, there's a new church in town, it's heretical, don't go anywhere near it. You know, this, it's not, this wasn't foyer talk, this was like, here's the name of it, don't go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. In the history, when the English conquered the French, okay, and in Canada, the English wanted to dominate the French, right? Yeah. And the French were very popular. Yeah. Populist, more than the Canadian. The, the, the English. Americans. Yeah. Now, the English wouldn't allow the French kids to have school. Right. So, what happened is the, the priests would teach the kids oh. or the nuns or the brothers right. through the Bible. Hmm. Okay? And that's the only education they had. And uh, the English promote the uh, cheaper by the, lo- the dozen or something. <laughs> if they would have 12 kids, they would get free land oh, yeah. uh, for the Canadians and uh, the French. Okay. So, they, uh, so you know how, well, you say the, the priests uh, dominates the, the yeah. yeah, and you have very much of a. I mean, it's different now in Quebec. There's there's a lot of atheism, but the the culture and the church, there was no s- real separation. Yeah, okay. There's no separate. It's just almost like one and the same. It's like going to a Muslim country today. Well, of course you're Muslim. Why? Because you're born here. Yeah. Just like I think I told somebody the story when I was a mis- doing missionary work in Morocco several years ago, and this guy said. He wanted to show me a Vanilla Ice video. Remember the singer? Yeah. The guy's a complete twit, right? And, and then he, he liked this Vanilla Ice stuff, and then he's like, no, I do, I do have a question. Even though I like Vanilla Ice, why do Christians act that way? And at first I didn't understand his, his question, but he was, he was convinced. I could, not talk, I could not convince him otherwise that just because Vanilla Ice from, I don't know, from the U.S. does not mean he's a, born, uh, a Christian. But in his mind, he couldn't even comprehend that because if you're a Moroccan, you're Muslim. And that, by the way, that is why, that is why, in part, groups like ISIS believe that any uh, North American or European soldier that steps foot on their land is a crusader. You can have all the conversations you want. It's entirely foreign to their worldview to think that there's a separation of church and state. Americans and Canadians and Brits are Christians, and they are coming to invade their country as Muslims. That they're convinced of that. So, anyway, there's one other reason why Jesus can't return yet. Jim texts me it's because the Leafs haven't won the cup yet. So, <laughs> so it might be a while. Anyway. <laughs>